Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Of course, uh, I looked it up, the pronunciation, and I may still have got it wrong. It's Scots, um, for Achtung Achtung, apparently. What? Although it never directed knew me that. to Yeah, but it directed me to an Irish site, so there's every chance that it's, um, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, Celtic, a Gaelic word. word. Gaelic oh, Celtic. God, don't never, oh, God, we sound like such ignorant, soft, southern twats. Right, anyway, many, <laughs> many thanks to listener Tamsin Smith for that one. What else could we offer St Andrew's Day, of course? This week... In 1944, the Home Guard was finally stood down. It was decided the Germans were not coming back from this one and we British could sleep easy in our beds, safe in the knowledge that we would not be forced to speak German anytime soon. And it's, of course, when um, when Sergeant Wilson reveals to Captain Mannering that, in fact, he's he was a captain in the First World War and is the military cross. And he, and he you never told me, you never asked. Just quite beautiful. Absolutely um, brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. How are you, James? Yeah, no, I'm all right, thank you, Al. How about you? I'm good, yes. Um, we hope you all enjoyed your, our Thanksgiving week of US-themed content. Um, it was good to concentrate on One Nation's narrative and to do a deep dive into some aspects of America's war that I don't think... Um, had it not been... I, I don't know about any of the listeners, but had it not been for this podcast, I would never, ever, ever have um, come across the role of the US Coast Guard in the Second World War. And certainly not the the fact that you've got Coast Guardsmen um, uh, ratings serving in uh, Omaha and Okinawa no. and Guadalcanal. News I mean, to me. News to me. I actually, I do, I, do a, yeah. I do a column in a, in a in a US magazine, and actually, I'm writing about it and making that exact point this morning um, before yeah. we started recording. Because uh, I, that's I, you, Joe... know, you know, I mean, Rachel's always reminding me that I've been kind of studying the war for three times longer than it actually <laughs> took place. <laughs> with a slightly sort of world-weary expression on her face. And yet, I still find that there are these huge holes in my in my knowledge. And, uh, well, and, and, and that was with Joe Ritchie, of course, um, who then, who, who with a trail of brilliant breadcrumbs, led us to uh, Marty Morgan, who um, those of you who are patrons will have seen on, um, uh, on the live cast last yeah. week on Thursday night, um, d- off the top of his head, telling you what the, um, yeah. you know, um, how fast a round from a boy's anti-tank rifle goes or an M1 carbine He's or amazing. carbine, depending on your p- p- pronunciation. And it's he was amazing. That- not brr. Yeah. <laughs> and rat-a-tat in someone's account is, is as good a description of, you know, is as good a guide to what weapon that might be. I mean, I, 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 I loved last week. Um, I thought um, Michel Paradis was particularly... Um, was, that was a particularly interesting uh, discussion it? about the Doolittle Raid and the aftermath of the Doolittle Raid. And it's sort of, for me, um, you know, if, I'm, if I have to give a, like a, you know, a paragraph answer as to why you study history, 
Um, rather than it's ju- it just it's really 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 interesting. His was <laughs> his was the sort of perfect epitome of the paragraph long why I why I'm interested in the history yep. thing because they found a direct parallel in a different situation where in fact you see patterns of human behaviour revealing themselves quite strongly in people who at the you know who are directly were direct in effect direct enemies and yet had arrived at the same similar set of decisions because they were convinced they were right and that's that's really really interesting and and you wouldn't really get... interesting and, yeah, and i also think wouldn't... that you 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 get i think with our the narrative of the war against the japanese i think we have been particularly bad at viewing it through the prism of the allied perspective rather than yep. the japanese and, and there's a whole host of very very good reasons for that but yeah. you know, I mean, I've just been, I've just been reading some work about the Battle of Peleliu, and mm. you know, which the Americans do take. It's a yeah. tiny, tiny island. But actually, from the Japanese point of view, it's an absolute. The, the victory is theirs because all they were yeah. there to do, they knew they couldn't win. They were there to yeah. kind of hold up the Americans as long as they possibly could, and they did kill as many Americans and they as did. they possibly could, yeah, and yeah. stop them and and and, and delay the, the the war uh, and. Yeah. Japan's own defeat, and they did that with bells on. Um, yeah. So from their point of view, they and, and then they all killed themselves at the end, which is what they were instructed to do. So from their point of view, it's yeah. mission accomplished. So it's just you know you're looking at it from a completely different perspective. It's really interesting. Yes, really interesting. There's that, so much that, more work to be done on all that. Well, yeah, and 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 a big big picture then is the is the the fact that this is also going on in all the Allied calculations. Because um, uh, that was the, uh, the other day I had to do an interview for the for, for my book. Um, with uh, one of the history magazines, and the, one of the questions was, you know, what 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 are the lessons of history? And again, you get into a paragraph length answer. But the one I the one I came up with is, you know, very often very often when you're looking at the past, the things you sometimes don't take into account are just the things that people <clears throat> assume as a given yeah. that that they don't bother communicating with each other about. They don't bother talking about them because they were given. And the one the you know, she so said, well, give me an example. And the example for me is the fact that the war in Japan is still going on. And, in, you know, we've talked about this keeps coming up that in April 1945, May, March, April 1945, that's what's on Allied commanders minds in Europe, which is why they don't go to Berlin, because after all, and then people go, oh, the atom bomb wins the war. Well, they didn't know if the atom bomb worked in April. No, they, they didn't know if it, it worked in work. May. Yeah. If it was ever going to work, yeah, they just didn't know. So even in April and May, you know, so 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 the fact that the war in Europe ends before, you know, is all good for the Allies. It's essentially for the Western Allies, the, the, the war ending in May and then not having to go to Berlin is 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 an ideal is actually an ideal outcome. Yeah, it's a result. Um, uh, it's a proper result, even though the fighting's been very bitter, and very hard. Because if it goes on any longer, it's going to affect the other the other grand stratagem. And I think that and that, but the thing is, is I've read I've read so many accounts of the war in the West, where well you know it's a big question mark. Why doesn't Eisenhower go go for Berlin? Think of all the trouble he would save himself in the Cold War. Blah 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 blah. But they're not thinking about the Cold War because there is no Cold War. They're thinking about the war, the actual hot war going yeah. on in the Far East. Yeah. And that's just a given. Everyone knows that, so they don't bother going. And of course we we we're doing this because of Japan they don't bother saying it and I think that's a that's another really interesting thing from history is all the things that don't get said that that that, that lurk in people's world views that that, that that explain their actions that you've got to really try and find and take into account which is really I mean you know 
And, and we've had a lot of that in talking to diff- people with different perspectives again. I mean, yeah, I thought the Ameri- I thought our thanks. I mean, I, I loved it. I don't know what the listeners thought, but I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I thought that, and it was, and it's always just such a treat getting these veterans now. I mean, they're such a sort of a rare breed and such a sort of special entity that to still have that eyewitnessed account of the Elsenbourne Ridge or, you know, the flag raising at Iwo Jima or whatever, it, it's just amazing. You still, you have to sort of pinch yourself that these, these people are still alive and, and yeah. sitting opposite well, and they're, you, they're... kind of talking to you about it. Direct connective tissue to the past. Although, as we uh, as we got talking with Marty on um, Thursday, uh, uh, in that the comes with all sorts of problems as well. Comes with all sorts of well com- complications. I think complications. Is a, is yes, a, I agree. Is a, is, a, is a is a better word, um, uh, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about again. That that, that you know that the uh, and in fact that yeah we'll 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 talk about it another time. It's the the fact that the historiography then influences. The eyewitness account, which is the most extraordinary notion, but nevertheless mm. something that, hist- that, that history is entirely vulnerable to. Right, anyway, a few bits of news before we get started. First up, we're going to be repeating our 12 days of Christmas book readings this <laughs> month. You may recall we read an extract from 12 books last year, and it proved a good way for many listeners to decide what they wanted to read in the new year. Because after all, what James and I are actually are is a shadow operation for big publishing who are trying <laughs> to pick your pockets. <laughs> we're a front. Well, I mean, we, why, why, why we aren't sponsored by um, a bookstore or a publishing house, James, I don't know. I don't know, doing, Waterstones. What's we're going doing on? devil's work for Waterstones, <laughs> aren't we? I mean, for heaven's sake. Well, anyway, to be fair, um, most of our 12 books of Christmas tend to be out, long out-of-print books. Well, and we're, and we're working on that. Um, so, uh, uh, so, uh, but also, we have some sensational, some sensational news from the front line. Big news for modelling fans. James and I will be having a modelling competition. Not the, not the kind you're thinking of, madam. The rules are that we get to make a tank in advance, but then have to produce the entire diorama, complete with a story in a single day, in what we're calling the Great British Kit-Off. We're going to film the whole epic battle, including beers at lunchtime, I imagine. I've already worked out what I'm planning to do, and so has James. And you've made a start this weekend, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Well, I just thought, I mean, you've set such a ridiculously high bar. I thought, well, I really, really got it. Yes, yes, yes. I really thought I I need to kind of sort of get get some practice in, because it is a long time since I've done any serious (laughs) modelling. And, and, what, and you have opened my eyes to kind of that, that it's not just a case of getting a few, you know, three pots of paint, one brush and, and some glue to kind of completely ruin the canopy of a Spitfire. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a load more than that. So I am now awash with washes and rust and Wonderful. Um, a little kind of sort of eyeshadow kits that for, for aging and weathering yep. and and i kind of sort of been, <laughs> been looking at this is some really cool eastern european dude who who does little youtube videos on techniques oh yeah um, yeah, about, yeah, about how, yeah. how, to, how to kind of weather and batter up your side armor uh, <laughs> all of which i was blissfully unaware but now i know <laughs> Um, well, so I got started, but what's really worrying me is just how bloody long it's taking. I mean, Jesus, yeah. how? Well, it involves a lot of paint drying. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah, so like... you literally have to, you have to wait for the paint to dry. Yeah, <laughs> really boring. And it's anyway, so 
Yeah, it's really fiddly. So um, we're not alone in doing this, though, um, uh, with our great British kit off. We want your support. So we've decided to launch a public competition for all of our listeners to join in. Starting today, we want you to dust down your old boxes of Airfix and Tamiya, build that plane, build that tank, get out those little paint pots, stick your fingers together with glue, wreck that canopy. <laughs> Every day, I mean, it was always... The, the, I, think what, I, I, I don't remember. Well, one of the reasons I switched to armoured fighting vehicles in the first place was probably canopies. Is that the, the, they're just too the canopy in a Lancaster is like that's a journey into hell. Yeah. Trying to paint well, that well, the problem thing. is, is, is you almost never to get get glue on it, and the moment you get just a speck of glue on your canopy, that it's is over. the entire model wrecked. I mean, you might as well just <laughs> stamp on it, chuck it in the bin, and start again because you've ruined it. I mean, they should always come with at least two spare canopies. Yes, that that, that isn't a bad idea. Or three three canopies. Or someone, I bet there's someone on eBay, eBay put, punts them out painted. Um, that would be, because yeah. the painting's really, the frame is really different. Anyway, every day we'd like you to, <laughs> we'd like you all to post your pictures and mini videos on Twitter using the hashtag kit off. That's right, kit off, because it's the great British kit off. funny. <laughs> um, yes, we may get some strange interlopers into our uh, Twitter bomber stream, but everyone's welcome here at We Have Ways. You have um, till Wednesday, the 23rd of December, so Christmas Eve Eve, to complete your model. And remember, the more story you add to, um, to your build, the better. We like stories. Broken bridges, soldiers hiding behind abandoned houses, U-boats rising from the depths, dogfights in the skies, um, pigs where they shouldn't be. We want the lot. And we want to see also your progress. So it's like you're doing your maths O-level. We want to see your workings out. Or GCSE. Although... Um, that's what. That, so that's it. We're doing. We're going to pick a winner, and then we'll announce them on Christmas Eve. Of course, you know who. Come you, on. you know who loved models. Who, who loved models? Reichsmarshal Goering. Did, oh, of course he did, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, because he had that. He had that, that sort of uh, Luftwaffe in his ceiling, didn't he? Yeah, he had a train but, set. Uh, he had a model train set, and he had the train set, and then then the Heinkels would come over on wires and drop bombs on them. <laughs> I mean, obviously, right, he, right. he wasn't worrying about canopy glue. Uh, I mean, no, you know, he, no. he, he'd get someone to do it all for him, obviously. But. He'll have had some poor um, slave labourers, mate. You know, I mean, that, imagine that that is your job. You, you yeah. end up drafted to Germany and you, you think, am I going to have to work in some foundry? And you end up making model trains for yeah, the Reichsmarschall. Exactly. But you have got <sighs> glue on my canopy, you schwein. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> well, um, the winner will get to come on the live stream and show everyone what they made. And they get to ask James um, and I any Second World War questions they choose. Plus, they'll win two tickets to the first live show we organised post-lockdown. Because we're thinking about doing a live show. We I'm are. expecting big things from you all. Also, um, you may have heard that we brought out a piece of pod merch in time for Christmas. Um, our two new We Have Ways mugs are now in stock. The Monty Mug. We'll hold your coffee comfortably from Alamein to Normandy, though it's only 90% successful in Holland, of course. The Churchill Cup. That's James Holland's cricket phone ringing. The Churchill <laughs> Cup is perfect for beaches, landing grounds, fields, streets, and indeed hills. Each mug costs a tenner with postage and packing, a fiver. Go to goalhangerpodcasts.com slash shop, and we'll tweet the link for you. Right, let's... Now, you have something you wanted to talk about because we've done quite a lot. We've done quite a lot of uh, chit chat there and quite a lot of admin training. Am I right? Yeah. Well, we got we got a letter in the other day uh, or an email, I should say, um, uh, saying it's all really great in everything what you're doing, but you don't do enough about the Germans, uh, which I would frankly dispute. Um, but 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 you know, James is obviously really down on the Germans and everything. But what about getting some experts on and what about doing you know this and analysing a little bit more? And I thought, okay, yeah, fine. And and um, and I think we should get some some 
German historians in. I think that'd be absolutely fascinating. But but my point is, is that I, I'm not down on on the Germans at all. I'm uh, and and their their soldiering capability. It, you know, I'm not just saying in a revisionist way. They weren't brilliant. They were absolutely rubbish. What I'm saying is, is that actually this all just needs a little bit of careful looking at. And you need to step back from all this and can't just assume that the Germans deserve the kind of pedestal on which they've been put, you know, since kind of, you know, the 1960s. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this is, is, is training, because we all there is this kind of persistent myth, isn't there, that, that the Germans have the best kit the best uniforms, best tanks, best machine guns, and they're the best trained. And the only reason they lost was because they were overwhelmed by greater industrial strength and, and manpower, you know, both on the Eastern Front. It was, it was a question of ants and industry. And very and very often when you read that uh, opinion, it sort of smacks of, I don't know, the Allies having cheated somehow. <laughs> yeah, a bit. But, but, but it's also really interesting that actually when you start to kind of sort of fold you know fold back the layers and start looking you go okay well fine well what you know what what does a german do when they're training you know what if they're, if they're so good then what's their training like what's really interesting about it i mean let's just take infantry training for for starters is what you realize is there isn't really much in it between the japanese the italians soviet union the germans the americans and the british they all do the basic things they do you know, they do square bashing, they do discipline, um, they do rifle shooting, they learn to read maps, they learn how to patrol, and they learn how to kind of read the land. And, and, and you know, if you look at a training manual, a British training manual, for example, um, and you look at a German infantry training manual, they're basically the same. I mean, they've got almost the same pictures in, they've got almost the same techniques in, they've got pretty much the same stuff. I mean, there's a thing that the Germans did, they had an unofficial training manual called the Rybert, which which literally every soldier had. Um, and it was published privately, but it had kind of everything you need to know. Um, but they also had their own training manuals as well. And they were just legion in their numbers. And you can you can get, you know, I've got a whole shelf, two shelves full of training manuals from the Second World War from various nations. And they're all much, much as the big difference really is that is a whole section on horses at the end of the German one, which obviously there isn't one in the British. I mean you know, there's a limit to what you can do. Uh, um you know Germans certainly at the start of the war, they kind of, you know, they have um they're kind of, sort of regional recruiting areas. So you go into a kind of Ursatz training battalion, which is part of an Ursatz training division. So you might go into the kind of 306th ersatz division and once you fully trained then you go into the 306th division on the eastern front or in italy or wherever it wherever it is uh, and it's the same with the british you know you start off and you go to your local recruitment center in york or wherever it may be worcester or whatever it is um as the war progresses all those things kind of get sort of thrown by the wayside and it's kind of just you know anyone you know so you have sort of cornishmen in yorkshire regiments and you know, Geordies in Wiltshire regiments and all the rest of it, because it all just sort of gets mixed up. But but um, the other thing is is that no one does all arms training, which is what you really need. And that's because you just can't. You, you know, so when you do your infantry training, you, you learn as an infantryman, and then you get kind of put together, you know, you, get, you, you go off and do proper training as a fully-fledged recruit, you know whether it's in England or whether it's on the job, and once you're in action in North Africa or wherever it might be, but but you don't do all arms training. No one does. 
because there aren't enough tanks to go around an artillery in the middle of a total war to enable that. Yeah. You know, so... Well, you're too busy sticking to... The tank men are too busy learning how to work tanks, basically. Yeah. To to, to learn how to work with infantrymen. Yeah. Because after all, this... uh, uh, So... So those things are left to doctrine that's written by... uh, In the British Army, those things are left to doctrine that's written by army commanders that's then passed down to um, corps commanders that then works its way down to uh, uh, divisional commanders and then down to... um, uh, Brigadiers, and then down to then down to colonels, basically, doesn't it? And 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 you'll get you'll get uh, the, how the British, um, you know, Montgomery, for instance, or Slim will write what I what I'm expecting us to be able to do type book, won't he? Yeah. Uh, 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 and actually, with his imprint on it, that that's he's that he's written and he's collated, and we're expecting this bit of equipment to be, to be able to deliver us this that, this, that and the other, <clears throat> blah blah blah. And then that that then that then trickles down and then so any any training anyone receives at the lower level i mean after all in normandy they're doing an aw- like you say an awful lot of this is happening on the job this sort of that the, the, the actually you've got to integrate infantry and tanks is a thing that's being um that they all know that when they get to normandy they just haven't done it and they certainly yeah. haven't done it in the clinch with the germans so that's when the changes <clears> and the and the the, the 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 tickling through of how you make that work happens it's not something that can happen in the abstract which is after all an awful lot of military training exists in pure abstract doesn't it because you don't really know how you're going to behave or how anyone's going how anything's going to work until it's put under the pressure of combat right absolutely i mean in the case of the kind of you know um, allied armies in in normandy i mean obviously a lot of those troops that, that land on d-day and beyond have been training in england for kind of two years beforehand uh, and they have done some all arms training. I mean, it's not all arms training in terms of, you know, so, so infantry have worked with artillery. Infantry have worked with tanks. But it's, it's, a, it's pretty kind of few and far between. And, and what you really want is you want tanks, armour, reconnaissance, infantry, engineers all working together. And that, and that, that hasn't really happened because, it, because practically it just can't. Because it's too complex. It's too expensive. It, you know, you need your, 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 your kit elsewhere. You know, but but and as you say, you know, the greatest trainer is kind of once once you're in in theatre and you're kind of on on the job. But the other thing is is also about sort of officers and 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 how the officer corps. You know, and again, the German system is kind of put on this huge pedestal because the German army is the only army where you have to go in the ranks first. And what you would have done before the war and, and in the early start of the war is you would have become a, a and Junker, which is a kind of sort of cadet officer on trial. But you'd have to go in the ranks for kind of, say, nine months where you have to kind of prove that you're up to it. You can only even be considered if you've got the academic qualifications to kind of, you know, to, to put that tick in that box. Then you go off to Krieg Schooler, which is pretty rigorous. And then you come out as a lieutenant, you know, as a as a second lieutenant, a lieutenant, uh, and off you go. And you're, you're pretty good. But of course, you know, as the war progresses, that also goes out the window uh, and what you have after that is people are just kind of earmarked you know okay you'd be good let's just go straight to Waffenschooler uh, and so you go off to Waffenschooler and, and train as an officer but the only only credit that you need is leadership skills as an NCO as a junior rank you know as a, as a non-commissioned officer first and courage proven courage and that that is your stamp an actual fact, that's pretty much what happens in the British Army too. So, you know, you can be raised up through the ranks. You're a particularly good platoon sergeant. You've proved your worth and, you know, off you go to a little stint at OC2, Officer Cadet Training Unit, and, you know, you're in. I mean, 
earlier on in the war. You know, you can only go to Sandhurst if you've got certain qualifications and all the rest of it. You know, so, you know, it's again, it's sort of a bit similar to the German situation. It's just you don't have to kind of go in as the ranks first. But, but you know, the point about, about officer training is you are trained harder than a recruit. You are expected to have higher standards. So, obviously, you still get the kind of, you know, your Tim Nice but Dim ends up as a kind of subaltern in some infantry battalion or whatever but but for the most part they are better when they better trained by the time they get there than the than an equivalent recruit as he's joining but you know so it's it where where you know where the kind of detractors against the allies go they go oh yes but the germans have kind of they have um mission command they have Alfstrag's tactic you know which is this sort of great buzzword that, that came in in the kind of 1970s, I think it was, into kind of British and American doctrine. Well, and it became, it became a very important piece of NATO uh, thinking, didn't it? Right. And uh, really, really <clears throat> central to NATO. And, the, and it's all this idea that you're trained for the rank above. Um, so if the chap above you goes, you know how to do his job is also an, a, a, a core component of it. And it's to do with this idea that German NCOs very often ended up doing officers' jobs as well isn't it there's that there's that thinking in it too but it's essentially the idea that that you say that that church over there we need we need to take that church and and in the british the 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 the, the received uh idea is that so the british army would then write an order they'd have an o group where they'd write that out as an order and everyone would then do what was in the order and if it wasn't in the order they wouldn't do it basically Whereas yeah. the German, the the idea is the German idea is that go okay, take that church. Everyone knows what to do, because everyone's everyone's g- g- just got the got the doctrine down. They've got the rhythm down, and they know they know how to do that without needing this sort of written order in it. And also, the German officer, if it then means he can then exploit the next situation, he do that. Whereas the British officer, in theory, stops at his objective. That that that's the characterization, isn't it? It is. Um, but what's really interesting is that Mission Command has been do- is, has been translated from Austrag's tactic, and Austrag's tactic is a kind of Napoleonic phrase that comes in. Um, uh, uh, but it's not a term that the vast majority of German servicemen would have understood in the Second World War. It's just not, you know, you would if you're Heinz Guderian, um, you would if you're Rommel, but you certainly wouldn't if you're a kind of a Leutnant or a or, or a you know a, a Feldwebel or whatever kind of NCO. Um, and, and actually, I asked every German that I ever interviewed. I always said, "What do you understand by Austrog tactic?" And they just looked at me like I was, you know, talking Esperanto. No one had ever ever heard of it at all. What they did understand was a word, a phrase called Selbststätigkeit des Unterführers, which is the independence of the subordinate commander. And I can understand why they went for Austrog tactic rather than Selbststätigkeit des Unterführers, because it is a bit of a mouthful. But but it but it is this independence of the subordinate commander is is the same principle as mission command. Yes, it is also about jumping, being able to kind of you know um, take on the mantle of a rank above you or a couple of ranks above you. But it is also about this idea that that the independence of of command that you say yes, go and capture that church. You don't prescribe how to how to do it. But you know what's really interesting is it's it's not as though the British don't understand this. So you know. A trawl through training memorandum, which were the British Army training memorandum, which were done every month throughout the Second World War. If you go back to March 1941, um, there's this line which says, 
Subordinate commanders must be trained to work on instructions rather than detailed orders. Which is exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly I mean, the same it, thing. I mean, or, you know, uh, you need good NCOs who know what they're doing. I mean, uh, it, that, that, it, 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 that's what it, that's saying, isn't it? Is if your NCOs are reliable, you, you, don't need to, you don't need to tell them what to do. You know, they'll, they'll get it done. Absolutely, it? but 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 what it's also but but what it's also showing is 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 it's not that the British don't understand that you need to kind of not be too prescriptive in your orders. They understand that you need to give people that that you need to give them the uh, the trust and and the faith to be able to do things themselves. Um, the problem, I think, I think the big difference is one of 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 discipline and motivation. You know, the problem you've got in the Allied armies and all armies to a certain extent is that a lot of people just don't want to be there. They don't want to get killed. They don't want to be in the Second World War. They don't want to be wearing uniforms. They want to be at home with their their, their missus and kind of, you know, getting on with their lives. And, and the last thing you want to do is be killed. So there isn't that kind of incentive there to kind of, there isn't that motivation. That That is why special forces tend to be better is because you've chosen to be a commando or in the SAS or in the parachute regiment or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and you want to be there because you want to be better. Uh, and so you've got that kind of that, that, that motivation. And when you've got that motivation, then you can use your own initiative. Then you although can again, do mission that, command. Although, again, that, that doesn't necessarily mean they're better led or, or any of those things, because, because uh, leadership is a thing that sort of, in the end... Again, we, we we keep coming back to this. Leadership again is the the thing that in the end dis- exerts itself or displays itself, makes itself manifest in the moment in the clinch, isn't it? Is that yeah. uh, you know you read again and again and again uh, accounts whether you know the chap who was the back home, the chap who was going to win the VC, they get into battle and and he goes to pieces, yeah. or you know officers dither when you really need them to not dither, and all that you know because after all we're talking about. Uh, it, it, intolerable pressure yeah the kind of pressure that uh, you know I've, i know i've never been under so i sort of fearful to judge really um although that is the historian's job in a way but 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 it it it, it it's really because after all training training in the end can only prepare you so far and if you're what you're saying here is that that your german german soldier is has a different different sort of portfolio of motivations um, and the German officer certainly has a different portfolio of motivators at his disposal. And, you know, we are talking, if you're talking about a Lancer who's, who's 19 in 1944, he has grown up a Nazi. Um, but, but that may be, he may be 100% Nazi, he may be a homeopathic Nazi, you know, with, with only trace elements available to him. <laughs> but, but, he's, but he's surrounded, he's grown up surrounded by that culture, knows what it is, knows why they're fighting and what it's for. And while, while often you, when you read accounts of what men fight, they're fighting for each other, they're fighting for their unit, they're fighting, you know, as a band of brothers to unfortunately end up having to say those words. But, but if you, you very often you look at what, what's motivating your, your German soldiers has got the other stuff on top in a lot, in a lot of the way, the same way Soviet soldiers have got a different, have also got, you know, communist revolution motivating. If, if you're a 19 year old, Red Army guy, you've also grown up in a sort of in a political hothouse, you could argue, um, and you've grown up you've grown up with with the idea that anyone who opposes the Soviet Union is somehow mad, after all, 
um, uh, you, you know, and so on. And Marxism, Leninism is the way and for the motherland and all that sort of stuff. So, again, that, you know, very often the motivation is, is doing a lot of the lifting rather than the training. Absolutely. Uh, and I think I think that's absolutely. Okay. And I think the other really big difference is, is, is one of discipline. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I do remember John Slesser talking, you know, he was was the deputy air commander. Uh, air officer commanding um, Mediterranean Allied Air Forces at the end of the war. And he was, and I remember him sort of moaning about the fact that, you know, a German can survive for four days on, on what a British or American soldier would expect to get in for one day. Um, but but that's because they're from a totalitarian militaristic state. You know, they've done the Arbeitsdienst, you know, which is the sort of labour work. So they've already been, you know, they've, they've had Hitler youth. Um, it's the same in Italy. They've had the kind of, you know, uh, um, the little sort of baby wolves and all that kind of stuff they do. You know, so all that stuff is just sort of being indoctrinated right from the word go. And the bottom line is, is if you don't do what you're told, you're going to get shot. Well, you're not going to be shot if you're in the American army or the, um, or, or the British army, for example. So... You know, how do you then keep your, your guys going? How do you keep that discipline? Well, you keep that discipline by making sure they've got cups of tea and Hershey bars and Camel cigarettes and all the rest of it. And they know that they're well supported and there's a long tail and the medical um, support is going to be second to none by the standards of the well, and, blah, blah, and blah. Also that And also that when the war ends, they will get a new house. There will be a health service. There right. will be work for them. if they're at, And if there isn't work for them, there will be a safety net. And all the other... All this other sort of, you know, actually quite rat for the 40s, radical infill um, social um, stuff that's going on in the background. And in fact, in the foreground, by the time the election comes around in 45, you know, it's what people are talking about, you know, uh, uh, at their regimental, at their sort of, their officers are talking about. And they're having to do, the army educational uh, services having to do these talks where they discuss this stuff and and the and Tory MPs get worried that communism is abroad in the army and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's, so there's all that going on. I mean, uh, the, on the subject of discipline, the other day, Andy Aitchison, one of our regular listeners, he yeah. posted this really brilliant thing of this guy, Albert Herbert, who was an artist after the war, who painted sort of religious paintings. Uh, Roman Catholic, he was fascinated by Roman Catholic mysticism. And it's an old programme on LWT with him in Normandy re- revisiting his, his battlefields. And he was doing this sort of, who, who could believe that, you know, anyone would ever imagine that I'd be in a field being shot at. He was sort of being insouciant about it. Yeah. And there's the very funny story about um, him carrying the pier to the officer says, well, why don't you sling it? So he slings it over the hedge rather than carries it on a sling. <laughs> and then and then later in the day, they say, the officer goes, Herbert, where's that pier? And he goes, well, I did what you told you. I slung it, sir. But anyway, he says, he says, He talks about discipline very, you know, from the point of view of a private soldier. He's going, well, how do you discipline a bunch of 19-year-old lads who don't particularly want to be there? How do you do it? And he says... It was. It's. It's collaborative. It's. A, it's the discipline yep. of cooperation. It's a dis- discipline of consent. Is what he effectively says. And he says, and then there's a bit where he's in a graveyard. He says, "I lay under this grave when an attack was a night attack was was coming in because I didn't fancy getting involved." And then in the morning I got out. And no one had missed me, so that's all right. And and it's a really interesting little bit of film. It's shot in the seventies, so he's not an old. He's not an old man with bugles. You know, last of the great generation oh, who we must treasure. That. that sounds brilliant. Uh, uh, it's really, really good, and it's on the LW. It's on the LWT archive. But it really points to that thing, you know. And he's had as much, or he's had as much training as you could have. But even then, he's saying, you know, he's saying a lot of it was really exciting, a bit of an adventure. 
Yeah. Um, but also, a lot of it you think, well, I'm not getting killed for that. No, no thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, we need to take a short break um, right now um, uh, because James and I have done our thing that is de rigueur. We have ways of making you talk and we've derailed ourselves and ended up talking about something for longer than we thought we would. We'll be back in a tick. All right. Uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we uh, have been talking about, well, we did a load of admin to start with. And we've been talking about training and different aspects of training. And was anyone better trained than anyone else? After I mean, The main thing is, as the pressure of the war develops, everyone's training deteriorates. Everyone's tr- standards get basically get lowered, don't they? Um and you know, the, yes, the, except the, the, except that as the war progresses, you've also got. I mean, what I was, I mean, you you couldn't argue that the British Army is is worse in 1945 than it was in 1940. It's much much better, and that's because they got more kit, they got more everything, they got more experience. I mean, the interesting thing, I, I think, the thing about one of the main reasons why we put the Germans on the pedestal is because we're always talking about the spearhead. We're talking about the very best units because. Those are the ones that cause all the problems. You know, no one remembers the Ost Battalion that was swept aside in two minutes. What you remember is the dogged SS Panzer unit that kind of, you know, knocked 10 bells out of you on Hill 112. That's what you remember. And it's those memoirs and, and testimonies that kind of come into it. And, you know, and that's why every gun's an 88. And well, every, every machine gun is a... Well, and also, and also 1940... Um, the, the strategic earthquake of Falkelb. Yes. The Germans, the Germans literally achieved the impossible, impossible that May, and Absolutely. that achievement that towers over everything, and it goes into people's thinking, it goes into people's training, it goes into people's expectations, and it and it casts an extremely long shadow. And except and when you except that even in 1939, even by 1940, only 38 percent of the attacking force was fully trained. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, 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 but the, but the point is, is, but the Germans are smart enough to use that bit that's fully trained correctly. at the at the correctly at the Schwerpunkt, and then the French, the French reliably um, d- d- deliver themselves up um, uh, for, for defeat in almost, you know, I mean, the, the French in the war game are doing exactly what the what the Germans want them to do, so to speak. Anyway. Um, uh, but this is, I think this is a, this is a fascinating subject. And, and, you know, we haven't even talked about Wigram's battle school and all that. And we haven't talked about, no. um, you know, the Americans, the Americans did a load of um, essentially customer surveys of their infantry to find out what people did. And which became famously that study where no one, no one shot at anyone, apparently, which has since been kind of um, uh, at, at the feathers plucked off it as an idea. Anyway, um, we'll do a question because that's what we... <laughs> Before we start recording, ladies and gents, um, there was a dis- discussion about how many questions we haven't answered yet and the growing email backlog. And so, yeah, we really need to knuckle down and get some done. So that's why we've talked for half an hour about training before the break. Because <laughs> anyway, this is an email. Um, so I smell old people from Daniel Hardingham, Hardingman um, about the South Nottinghamshire Hussars. Gentlemen, I'm not old. Let's just consider email slightly retro for the sake of argument. Obviously, I love the pod. It fills my journey to and from work perfectly. Right, let's see if we can help with this question. I'm a current serving regular soldier in the Royal Horse Artillery. Wow! But I started my military journey with my local TA regiment, the South Nottinghamshire Hussars, and they will always have a place in my heart. During the North Africa campaign, they had grown in number and formed two regiments, 107th and 150th. 
107th were effectively wiped out in an action known as the Battle of Knightsbridge, providing a suicidal defensive rearguard action to cover the retreat of the British Army during the Battle of Gazala campaign. I've had the privilege of meeting a number of veterans of the battle at their annual association dinner over the years and was always slightly awestruck by one in particular, a certain Ray Ellis, who was captured at Knightsbridge, escaped the clutches of an Italian POW camp and spent the following weeks and months evading recapture. I would love it if you could find the time to talk about this battle, either specifics or generally. I'm certain there must be some snotties that would get a kick out of hearing about it once more. The regiment was downsized post-war until it became a sole battery for a long time, finally succumbing to suspended animation in 2013, a political travesty, although I hear rumours of the reformation of a troop under 210 battery Royal Artillery volunteers. Um... James, I, they also have a link with your much-discussed and beloved uh, showman, mm-hmm. uh, showman uh, Rangers Yeomanry. I believe the two at one point, um, uh, 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 one point, one and the same before splitting. Love your stuff. I'm off to join the independent company. That's from Dan in the 3rd Royal Horse Artillery. Well, well man, I mean, what, what a lot of stuff there. Um, yeah. Well, they well, do Knightsbridge- actually. They do, sh- they do share a... Um, so the, the Royal Notsars... Um, they share uh, a museum at Thorsby with the Sherwood Rangers, uh, and it's sort of, and it's a lovely museum too. Um, but yeah, Knightsbridge is a, and actually, I knew Ray Ellis. He was, he was a really fantastic guy, and he wrote a, he wrote his own memoir, which he never published. Which actually, now I think about it, really ought to be published because it's absolutely fantastic. And when I was doing my reorganisation of my my archive in my shipping container the other day, I came across it and thought, oh yeah, I remember dear old Ray. He later became a headmaster after the war, and he writes beautifully. Uh, and I interviewed him as well. I interviewed a couple of other um, people from the um, from the um, not Cesars who were um, when I was doing that together we stand. You know the book about North Africa yeah. I did all those years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Knightsbridge is just, it's just, I mean, the whole Gazala battle is just such a kind of, it's, you know, I mean, you know my views on this. I mean, I just think it is the nadir of British forces in the British Army in the Second World War. Yeah. I, I think there's no excuse for it. Uh, you can sort of, you, yep. can, you can sort of just about kind of excuse Singapore because, you know, they were under-equipped and weren't preparing for it and all the rest of it and they were caught with their trousers yep. down to a certain extent. Um, but by, by 1942, they really ought to know better. And, and it's just it's just it's just bad generalship, and it's just that's all there is to it. It's not it's got nothing to do with the troops. It's got nothing to do with the kit. You know, kit training is all about as good as each other. It's just about generalship, and it, it's an absolute shower. And, and he's absolutely right. You know, they get absolutely decimated. You know, they're completely destroyed. And and Eighth Army retreats to book to Brook Falls. It's a, a complete. I mean, it's basically a total shit show. And uh, not and I mean you know we were talking earlier on about 1940 and the great the, you know the the, the 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 shadow that that casts. This is still the Wehrmacht seen as unbeatable. Yes. This 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 feeds into this feeds into the sort of neurosis that that um you know and Ch- Churchill at this point is you know this is full full on find me some bloody generals or fight part of the war isn't it? Yeah. He he's. He, it, it looks like there is the British Army just cannot figure this thing out, just cannot do it. And if you're, you know, if you're one of those one of those people who um, who, who says, well, you know, the the, the Wehrmacht are, uh, are really shiny and shit hot. This is one of those moments, isn't it? The British yeah, Army can't it tie their own is. bootlaces. Uh, and what's really interesting is even before the Gazala battles, which which start on the twenty sixth of May, nineteen forty two. Um, if you asked 
most most soldiers in in Eighth Army who they thought was the best general in North Africa, they would all say Rommel. I mean, you know, nine out of ten would say Rommel, and that's just not that's not not good at all. Uh, and that 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 suggests there's a kind of real malaise in morale, in confidence, in self belief, all those kind of things. I mean, the South Knot Cesars are on twenty five pounds, if I remember rightly, but they're, they're, they've been turned into a sort of field field regiment, and. Um, what happens is the Gazala line, and the, the basic idea for the Gazala line is a complete waste of space because because it's 15 miles ahead of Tobruk, which is on the coast, which is a port, which which can be converted into the lines of Torres Vedras, and which held out for nine months the previous year, despite Rommel's best efforts to reduce it, with very very small amounts of forces within it, um, and and indeed ordnance and firepower, which suggests that if the whole of Eighth Army kind of slotted itself into um, in, into Tobruk, they would make it absolutely, completely, totally unbreakable without any shadow of doubt. And the point is that Rommel and, they, and, and the, the tractors would go, yeah, but then Rommel could just bypass it. And the answer is no, he can't because the only way he can go in is because because his supply lines would get cut. The moment you know he can't be everywhere. So, um, so so to Brook is best place, and that means that you can continue to kind of resupply it all the time. The problem with having a line is it's got. It's got to have an end, uh, and that end can be outflanked at that part of the ba- uh, of the battlefield in Libya, and of course that is exactly what happens. And there's also huge gaps between the concentrations of forces. So what you have is you have all the infantry in what's known as boxes, um, surround. So you have all the infantry in this kind of big area surrounded by minefields and wire, and then you have another gap which is bridged by yet more mines and what the germans do is they just they basically come in between the bottom of the line and bir hakim which is where the free french are on a kind of limb kind of 10 miles beyond the next british unit they come in behind and out and outflank it now what then happens is you've got then got these mobile reserves of seventh armor division and of which the nazis are are, are part of that um uh, to come in and, and, fo- and capture basically sandwich the africa corps between the boxes and your mobile armoured units. But they make a fist of that as well. I mean, you know, first of all, the line is a terrible idea. Then once once Rommel's outflanked it, it should still have been possible to completely defeat him, envelop him and surround him and destroy him very, very quickly. The reason that doesn't happen is because no one can make their mind up. No one makes a decisive order. Everyone faffs because there's a total lack of grip at the very top of 8th Army. And then what happens is suddenly it's kind of turned into a complete shit show. Uh, and actually the, the Africa Corps has regained its balance and fought back. And suddenly there is this rear guard that the uh, Knightsbridge um, where the um, South Nazis are caught up and they get completely destroyed. Well, the gu- no fault the, of their own. Uh, uh, and you've the, the Guards Brigade trying to get out, basically trying to get out of uh, Knightsbridge, haven't you? And, uh, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so why? Well, I, okay. So, so, to throw this back to an earlier conversation, why are the subordinates? Because after all, what was that German thing for trust in the subordinates called? Yeah. Um, um, yes. Selbstständigkeit der Unterführer. What's going on? Why is there dithering? Why is it rivalries? Because after all, one of the characterizations of the British Army in, in the desert in, the, in 1942 is that you have cavalrymen who are running the tanks and they want to do cavalry charges the way they would do cavalry charges because they still haven't figured out that, that tanks aren't horses. And and what you've got is a, 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 an inability at the top of Eighth Army to, to actually say, no, you do as you're bloody well told. And you'll uh, you'll go where I want you. So what happens is you end up coming up coming up with battle plans and orders that attempt to mitigate this problem. 
the attempt to go, well, if they're going to do, if they're going to hair off, we might as well ha- have them hair off where I want them to hair off rather than in any, any other direction. So what, what's actually going on in the, in Eighth Army Command? Why is there this sort of uh, schism between, you know, that you can't, that, that, that this sort of, in, in a weird way, an acceptance at the top that you can't control your subordinates. And they're not really going to do what you want them to do. So you end up with a plan like this that is appallingly compromised. Yeah, What's well, going at, on? At, at that absolute junior level, and the, uh, and, and the South Knots as ours are an absolute case in point, they are left to their own to kind of just do what they can. And those yeah. junior officers, you know, the lieutenant colonels, majors, captains and, and, and subalterns, are absolutely doing Selbststatigkeit des Unterführers yeah. and, and using their yeah. initiative. The problem is, is they've been abandoned at the very top. And the reason they're being abandoned yeah. at the very top is because you've got um, Lieutenant General Neil Ritchie, who it was chief of staff to, um, to, to Auchinleck as commander in chief of the Middle East. And Auchinleck has decided that Cunningham, who was the previous um, commander of 8th Army, isn't up to it. So he sacked him and put in Neil Ritchie instead. And R- Ritchie is promoted above his pay grade and above his capabilities at that stage of the war. And so what happens is you've got all these different nationalities as well. You've got Australians, you've got South Africans, you've got some very, very strong characters at a, at a kind of, you know, a core and divisional level. And they're all bickering amongst themselves. And, 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 and Richie doesn't have the weight of authority or experience to overrule that. So constantly there's lots of, of head scratching. And it is Auchinleck, it is Auchinleck, uh, um, who has said, I really think, you know, we should have the Gazala line. Even though people like Francis Tuca, who are kind of sort of in the shadows at this point, waiting to take over 4th Indian Division, are going, this is insane. Why don't you just reinforce Tobruk? And everyone just ignores him. Uh, um, because it's too well, many what's Richie? Well, does Richie know this? Does he know he's out of his depth? Is he writing home? I mean, do we know, do we have Richie's papers, his diaries, his letters? Is he saying... Oh Christ! I've bitten off more than I could chew. What do we know about him? Because yeah, clearly he's a very he's a very important player if he's making these kind of mistakes and sort of and and you know resulting in Eighth Army seeding ground they're only going to have to retake. Yeah, I mean the, the Gazala line is one of the most bizarre decisions ever. That every so often you know you go through the Second World War and, and and you look at it and you just think, why on earth would you do that? It's it's you know like least switching over the divisions and corps just before the assault on the Gothic line in in yeah. September 1944 as well. It's just really it makes no sense whatsoever. And the and Gazala line is one of them. I I think it's just a, a, a sort of mindset that they just thought this is the way to do it. You've got to stand off against these guys, put a line, and you've got to make it. So kind of heavy with mines and wire. This is the way to do it. That that yeah. you'll deter them, uh, um, and they're just not thinking creatively enough, laterally enough. The idea of kind of sort of taking it back to Tobruk, which after all they kind of defended. So you know, the, for nine months the previous year, and the whole point of the kind of Crusader uh, operation in November, December, nineteen forty-one was to kind of relieve Tobruk. They've relieved Tobruk. They've moved forward. So to go back would seem kind of retrogressive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I don't know. I, I guess all that's coming into play. Um, but the problem is, is that Ritchie is not has no experience as a battlefield commander at all. You know, he's he's uh, certainly not at that level. You know, he's a staff officer, and he he's basically Auchinleck's mouthpiece, who is back in Cairo. And Auchinleck's also kind of lost it. You know, he just hasn't quite... He's got too much. His command is too big. His brain is scrambled, and he can't quite work it out. He's try, They're trying to ape the kind of manoeuvrability and flexibility of the Africa Corps and, and, and Rommel's Panzer Army Africa, but they don't have the setup for that. That's not how... 
the British operate. You know, that's not how they work. And so it, it it's just it just the whole thing is just a complete shower. And then what happens is all these corps commanders and divisional commanders all start bickering with each other and, 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 and arguing about what's the best way to do things. And then when in the heat of battle, when orders need to be enacted really, really quickly, they don't do it. They just they're, they're too cautious. They're too slow. They're too indecisive. They're faffing around too much. And so it is those higher level commanders that are cocking it up for everybody else. I mean, I mean, Tobruk should never have fallen on the 21st of June 1942. You know, they should have never been outflanked. You know, Rommel should have been utterly destroyed at that point. And, yeah. and, and, and he says so. And says, doesn't he? If you're gonna if you're gonna serve your guys up, um, uh, so I can pick them off one at a time, I'm gonna do that, doesn't yes. he? He says, if that's what if that's what you're gonna do, um, uh, you're making my life really too easy. Yeah. Um. Fascinating. So what did what? So Ray Ellis, um, what he was a what what happened to Ray Ellis? So he was captured. Um, I think he did eventually escape. I mean, he ended up in in Italy. But he did eventually escape, if I remember rightly. He was one of those ones that sort of got back. If I, I think I can't, I've, I can't say for hundred percent sure, but I think he was one of the ones who managed to sort of get back into Allied lines. Um, and he got home, and you know, he war ended, and and you know, he went into teaching, and later became a headmaster. But he was a very, he was a lovely guy, and he and he was very kind of thoughtful and very articulate about his experiences uh, and in his analysis of what had happened and everything and he was just a very very interesting guy and he and he wrote this this self-published yeah it was just, just on full scat memoir called once a hazar um uh, and it, and it's and it's and it's really really interesting yeah and i interviewed a couple of other people whose names escape me right now but but a couple of other people who survived i mean you know some of them did get back and i mean, I mean one of the guys um i interviewed he ended up being in a medium regiment by time of Alamey. You know, so he managed to managed to escape. So they were, when I say they're completely destroyed, they were destroyed, but but not every single person was captured. You know, some people did get away. Oh well, well, thanks, Dan, for that question. Um, uh, all, all the best to the Royal Horse Artillery. Um, yes. Um, I I used to Lovely live. I used to live. Yeah, I used to live where um, you know, they'd all come trundling past on their way to Wormwood Scrubs to practice. Yeah. With their with their with their uh, gear, right. That's it for today. This Thursday, we've got the second half of our conversation with Roland White, expert on the legendary Harrier jump jet. Um, it's very entertaining. That we'll be live streaming the show on the internet on Thursday evening as usual. Do join us for that, eight thirty UK time. And don't forget to get modelling. Tweet your pictures, your plans. The box you're finally going to open. We want to see the lot. Hashtag kit off. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? Um, and on the anniversary of the uh, standing down. Of the home guard, there's only one way to win. Don't tell them, Pike! <laughs> Bye for now. Cheerio.